Good morning, Bridges family and, and others. Uh, today's Palm Sunday, but it's a different kind of Palm Sunday. The quarantine continues to take away things that, that we take for granted. It's taken away our, our ability to meet together physically in, in this location. And today, that also means we'll not experience our kids coming down the aisle, waving palm branches, collecting coats, and, and singing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, even though some experiences are missed, the most important experience has not and, and cannot be taken away. We can still experience the one who came in the name of the Lord. We can today personally experience the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. And that's my hope for us this Palm Sunday. We're pausing our study from the book of Romans for two weeks, for Palm Sunday and, and next week for Easter. And today, as we look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as we see people rightly crying out to their king, to Jesus as their king, I want us to experience him. I want us to focus on Jesus Christ. I want us to see him as our king. And I want us to be transformed by what we see. For just as, as this is a different kind of Palm Sunday, Jesus is a different kind of king. Have you ever come in contact with an earthly king? Now, I haven't, but, but once, when uh, Christine and I, our kids, when we lived in Thailand as missionaries, we came in contact with royalty. We were on the second floor of a, a Bangkok shopping mall, and, and we noticed that people were looking over the rail and down to the first floor, and so we looked as well. And what we saw were Thai people uh, backed up against the wall with their heads bowed low. And as an, as an entourage of men in dark suits surrounding a, a teenage girl walk through the mall, we saw them go into a small store and clear everyone out so that the girl could shop. I had no idea what was going on, but, but in my limited Thai, I asked someone, and they said that the girl was a princess. She was the granddaughter of the king. Here she is in this uh, picture I have with her father, who is the current king of Thailand. And yes, those are their, their names. I won't even, I can't pronounce them and I, I won't try. Now, this is just a small example from my own experience of how royalty is treated in our world. And this was just the granddaughter of the king. Imagine if the king himself had, had, had come into the mall. In our world, kings are given special privileges, wealth and honor, fame and power. In fact, the news is reporting that right now, during this pandemic, the king of Thailand is in Germany, self-isolating in a luxury hotel with an entourage of 20 concubines and servants. What a contrast to Jesus, who on that first Palm Sunday entered Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd, who, who could be considered, this could be considered the high point of his earthly ministry. And as he enters, he is rightly proclaimed king, but we soon see that he's a, a different kind of king. And today we're going to look at three characteristics that set him apart from all earthly kings. They stand in stark contrast to the kings who've come and gone throughout our history. And the first characteristic that we see in Jesus is his humility. Jesus is a humble king. Humble and king do not usually go together, but, but that's what we find in Jesus. Even though he had every right to be proud, in, in verse 12, the beginning of our text for today, 
We read the next day, this is the day after Lazarus and his sisters held a dinner to honor Jesus uh, for raising Lazarus from the dead. That is certainly something to be proud of, something no other king has done. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. There's a great crowd in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Some historians estimate that there, there may have been a, a, as many as one million people that escorted Jesus into Jerusalem. And in verse 13, he, it says, So they took palm branches, excuse me, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Picture the huge crowds. Excited people, waving palm branches, which symbolized victory and celebration. Because in 165 B.C., when the Jews led by Simon Maccabees recaptured Jerusalem from the Syrians, they entered it with praises and with palm branches. And the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, a term of praise. It literally means, help, I pray, save now, I pray. The crowd hoped Jesus would prove to be a great king, a military conqueror, one who would liberate them from, from Rome and establish a new Jewish kingdom. They also cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quotation from Psalm 118.26, and it shows their hope that Jesus was the Messiah that they were expecting. That hope was further expressed by their hailing him as, as, as king of Israel, they were ready to accept him as their conquering king, their hero, the one who would save them from Roman tyranny. Now put yourself in Jesus' sandals. You can imagine how all of this could go to your head, how pride might take over, how you might be, begin to bask in the glory of your own awesomeness. And if anyone ever had the right to bask in the glory of their awesomeness, it was Jesus but in the midst of this coronation-like atmosphere, Jesus did something unexpected, but very symbolic. In verse 14 we read, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 500 years earlier, Zechariah had written, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? As Jesus mounts this donkey, he identifies himself with the long-awaited Messiah prophesied by Zechariah and others. And at the same time, he is saying, He's not like other kings. The donkey was a royal beast, but it was an animal that symbolized peace and humility. If Jesus had been this conquering warrior the people were hoping for, a war horse would have been more appropriate. But choosing to ride a donkey, Jesus entered Jerusalem as the humble prince of peace. But the symbolism of his humility was lost on the crowd. They con continued to proclaim Jesus as as their king. Now the people in the crowd were not the only ones who failed to grasp the significance of, of what was happening. In verse 16 we read, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John indicates that his disciples did not understand these things. They didn't get the meaning of this triumphal entry at the time. They 
couldn't comprehend that Jesus came not as a conquering warrior, but as a humble savior. Even in the time of his greatest popularity, Jesus chose to demonstrate humility. Have you ever thought about the humility of Christ? How he was born not to royalty, but to a poor uh, peasant couple? How he grew up not in the glory of a palace, but in the obscurity of a dusty village? How even when he went public, he didn't demand to be served, but he served others. Why was Jesus so humble? Well, let me give two answers to that. First, because the purpose of his coming was was a humble purpose. He didn't come to rule on earth, to set up a, a physical kingdom. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be a sacrificial offering for the sins of humanity. And that's what we're going to talk about in our third point. So Jesus was was humble because his purpose in coming was a humble purpose. But there's a second reason for Jesus' humility. That is to provide an example for those who would follow him. He desires his people to be a humble people. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was and is the greatest human to ever walk the face of the earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And even more than that, he is God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And yet, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. To me, that's the most amazing truth ever stated a humble king. Maybe throughout history we can find one or two, one or two kings who for a time expressed humility, but a humble God, that's beyond comprehension. But it's not beyond application. Paul nailed it on the head. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. If your king, your creator is willing to humble himself, what does that say to you? What does that say to me? his subjects, his creation. Jesus is a humble king, and if we desire to be part of his kingdom, we too must humble ourselves. We must first humble ourselves before him. We must surrender to him. That's what we emphasized two weeks ago as we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based on God's great mercy, his compassion for you, especially his mercy of sending his one and only son to die for you. The King of kings and the Lord of lords humbly died in your place. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to humble yourselves, to not think more highly of yourselves than you ought, and to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Remember uh, from two weeks ago, your logical service. Our response to Jesus Christ, to our humble King can be nothing less than humbly presenting ourselves to him. 
Here I am, Lord. I bow before you in adoration and humility. I'm yours to use for your purposes. So we must first humble ourselves fully before God. And maybe, at least in theory, that's not a problem. To say to, oh, God, okay, we're under the creator of the universe, but I'm just one step below God, okay. The God of heaven and earth, to submit to him uh, certainly seems logical. But our humility does not stop with God. Notice again that Jesus humbled himself before God, and he submitted to, he submitted to God's will, but Jesus also humbled himself before men. He took on the nature of a servant. He humbled himself before God and before men, before Pilate, before the Jewish religious leaders, before the Romans, and he became obedient to his father by going to the cross and dying in our place. Therefore, the application is clear. We are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This, my friends, is where the rubber hits the road. We're so prone, I am so prone to selfishness, to, to vain conceit, to think that, that we are better than others. We as human beings are so prone to looking out for our own interests. Case in point, just take the recent run on supplies at our, at our stores, like meat and eggs and milk and TP, toilet paper, hand sanitizer, other things. When people believe they're facing a potential crisis, that their interests may be threatened in some way, when they think that the stores would run out of certain things or they think that they wouldn't be allowed to go to the stores to get certain things, do they think of others along with themselves? No. They, we think only of ourselves, ourselves first and foremost. We react selfishly and, and create, if not a crisis, at least a shortage for others. We're definitely prone to look out for our own interests instead of the interests of others. But King uh, Jesus' life of humility screams out for us to change, to be like him and not like the world, as we'll look at uh, in some detail in two weeks, Paul says to the church in Rome, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be like this world where pride and selfishness and conceit are the norm, but instead allow the example of Jesus Christ to enter into your mind, to renew your mind that you might be transformed into his image, into the image of your king your king who humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. So first, Jesus is a humble king, and we are to be his humble subjects. And second, Jesus is a global king. In verses 17 and 18, we read this. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The Jewish people were hailing Jesus as the king of Israel. They were flocking to him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Their desire was for Jesus, that Jesus would become a, a political and a, a military deliverer. They probably believed that since he had the power to raise the dead, he, he could surely use that power to free them from Roman oppression. It seems clear that most of the people were only hailing Jesus as king because they thought he would free them from Rome. 
And in less than a week, when it became obvious that people kind of a political messiah that they had expected, the people followed the lead of the Pharisees and the, the leaders in rejecting him. Many of the same voices that shouted Hosanna at the triumphal entry would, would scream crucify him on Good Friday. The crowd wanted Jesus for their earthly king, the king of Israel. And when he didn't act like they thought their king would, they rejected him. But Jesus was, was much more than an earthly king, the king of one nation, one group of people. Jesus is the eternal king of all people. And in what must be one of the most ironic statements in all of Scripture, Jesus' worst enemies declare this truth. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, they see this huge crowd, everybody following Jesus, hailing Jesus, declaring him as their king, and they say, you see that, that, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees were frustrated and alarmed. For them, the triumphal entry signaled their defeat. Ever since Jesus came on the scene, they had opposed him. They saw him as a threat to their power. And if Jesus led this crowd in an armed revolt against the Romans, their power would be lost. So the Pharisees' exclamation, Look, the world has gone after him. Their worst fears are coming true. Now for them, the, the, the statement was an exaggeration because of how many people were calling for him to be their king. But in reality, their statement was an unintended prediction of the gospel spread throughout the world, demonstrating that Jesus is more than the king of Israel, but the king of all people. Jesus is a global king. And as if to illustrate uh, this in, in a small and symbolic way, John introduced right here in this passage, some Greeks. Verse 20. Now among those who were, were up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Scripture does not tell us who these Greeks were. But because John says that they were those who were up to worship at the feast... They were probably Gentile converts to Judaism or God-fearers, Gentiles who had abandoned their, their pagan religion and turned to worship the one true God. And these Greeks wanted an audience with Jesus, so they came to Philip. Why Philip? Probably because John points out he was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Bethsaida uh, was near the Gentile region known as the Decapolis. And they may have been from that region. Further, as a native, native of Galilee, Philip probably spoke Greek. So unsure of how to handle these Gentiles, Philip came and he told Andrew about the request. Together, Philip and Andrew came and told Jesus about these Greeks' request for an interview. Now, interestingly, these Greeks are not referred to again. We can't even be sure, be sure that Jesus ever spoke to them. So why does John include them in his gospel? As I mentioned, it seems they're, they're there to illustrate the fact that Jesus is more than the king of Israel, that his kingdom will go beyond, that he's a global king. He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all people. That is, all people have the opportunity to become part of his kingdom. Jesus does not discriminate. His kingdom is open to all nations, all tongues, all tribes, all peoples. to be his And what that means for us, his followers, 
his subject, is that we are to be his ambassadors. We're ambassadors of his kingdom. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Jesus Christ in this world, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's our responsibility as the subject of, subjects of the global king to represent Jesus Christ in this world so that people everywhere will have the opportunity to become part of his kingdom. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John gives us a picture of this global kingdom. He writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Notice the palm branches. This is Jesus's. This is the Lamb's kingdom. The people are holding palm branches in their hands. Maybe this is the, the true triumphal entry. When the true subjects of the kingdom celebrate Jesus, they celebrate his victory over sin and over death. So these Greeks represent what is to come, the, the global nature of Jesus' kingdom. They had requested an audience with Jesus, and the disciples tell Jesus about their request. But as I said, Jesus does not reply directly to their request. At least it's not recorded here. And at first glance, he doesn't appear to address them at all. But I believe what, what comes next is directed to them, but not just to them. What Jesus is about to say is meant for all. All of those present when he said it and all throughout history, like us who read it. These words are addressed to all who would request an audience with Jesus. Jesus is now going to reveal just how different he is from other kings. He's going to state, state it boldly. And that brings us to our third and our final point. Jesus is a sacrificial king. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he spoke of, of this future hour of, of glorification, where he would receive glory, where he would glorify God. And now it's arrived. He's speaking of the hour of his crucifixion when in that one glorious act of sacrifice, humanity is provided with a way to God, with reconciliation, the opportunity for reconciliation with God. But the crowd certainly did not understand it this way. Jesus is surrounded by people declaring him to be their king. So when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, they surely interpreted this to mean that, that this is the time. This is the hour that, that I've come to overthrow the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom, a new Israel. But Jesus' next statement makes it clear that he's talking about his death. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses this agriculture, this agrarian illustration that would have been familiar to his audience. The grain, the seed, must die to accomplish its purposes, producing many more seeds. Yes, the Son of Man would be glorified, but not by conquering the Romans and establishing an earthly kingdom as they wanted. Instead, he would be glorified by, on the cross, giving his life as a sacrifice for many. Jesus knew that after the cross, 
the gospel would spread far beyond the borders of Israel. So he responded to the Greeks' request to see him by pointing to his death. The Greeks wanted to see him, but Jesus knew the only way they could truly see him was if he died for them. Just as a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies to produce a rich harvest, so also Christ's death would bear much fruit by providing salvation to all who believe, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, all peoples. Jesus is a sacrificial king, willing to give his life for his people. And if the king is willing to give his life, what what must that say to us, his subjects? In verse 25 and 26, Jesus tells us what it looks like to be a follower of this sacrificial king. He's been speaking about himself, and now he speaks directly to us, to those that would come after him, to those that would trust in him. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where and where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is truly radical stuff Jesus is calling for. He's alluded to his sacrificial death, and then he says to those who, who will follow him, you must lose your life. You must hate your life in this world. You must serve me as your king. You must follow me on this path I'm, I'm going, and that path was to the cross. Not that you'll die for the sins of anyone, as Jesus did, but that you'll die to self, and that you'll live for Christ. Jesus goes to the cross, and he bears much fruit by dying, by hating his life in this world. And then he says to those who would trust in him, die with me. Hate your life in this world. Follow me. Serve me. Now let's be clear again, this is hard stuff. It's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. Everything around us screams, love, love the world. It's hard to follow Jesus to the cross. It's hard to take the role of a servant. But I want us to see that it's not all hard. Yes, there's a hard, sacrificial part to being a Christian, to being a true follower of Jesus Christ. But there's also a glorious part. And the glory overshadows, uh, compensates for, uh, puts to shame the hardness in every way. In fact, the glory turns the hardness into the most significant possible of lives. Here's the glory of a life lived sacrificially for Christ. Yes, the seed must die, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Your death to self is not in vain. It's significant. It bears fruit. If you want a productive life, a life that produces for the kingdom of God, you must die to self. And yes, if, you love, if we love our lives, we will lose them. And yes, we must hate our lives in this world, but why? What will the outcome be? that we may keep our lives for eternity. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What we lay down for Christ, he will put back into our hands. He will multiply it again in his glory. We cannot out-sacrifice our sacrificial king. And yes, we must follow him to the cross. But what's, that, what's the outcome? 
And where I am, there my servants be also. And where is Jesus? Well, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. If we follow him to the cross, if we die to ourselves, if we serve him, we will be in heaven with him. And yes, we must be his servants. And what does the Father do for his servants? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Can there be a greater reward than the honor of the Father? Do you long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, coming from the lips of your Father in heaven? So don't miss the glory in this hard life of being a Christian. We bear, we die to bear much fruit. We hate our lives in this world so we can keep our lives for eternity. We follow Jesus to the cross and we, and we, and we join Jesus where there is glory. We become servants and the Father honors us. Jesus is a new kind of king, a sacrificial king. And we are called to be a new kind of sacrificial people, Christians, those who are becoming, those who are be becoming like Christ. Amen? And that, the fact that Jesus is the sacrificial king leads us to our time of communion. I hope you were able to get uh, some kind of juice or liquid, some bread or crackers to participate. Now we've said that this is a different kind of Palm Sunday and that Jesus is a different kind of king and, and now we come to a different kind of communion. The word communion contains within it the, 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 this idea of community. When Jesus instituted uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, he gathered with his disciples. They were sharing a meal together, the, the Last Supper. So we lament the fact that on this Lord's Day, we are unable to gather together at his table. But communion is not primarily about gathering with one another. It's primarily about our communion with God through our remembrance of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Communion for me has always been a, a very personal time. A time to reflect on the state of my relationship with God. A time to remember and be thankful for, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for me. So today, wherever you are and whoever you're with, I'd call us to a personal time of reflection and remembrance as we celebrate the Lord's table. To the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we're to examine ourselves. We're to reflect on our relationship with God. So I'd encourage you today in this unique setting, this is different, to take all the time you need to examine yourself before the Lord. We often do this in our communion services together. We take a minute or two to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. And then we confess our sin to God, receiving his forgiveness. And we'll do that today as well. But before we eat the bread and drink the cup, I'd like us to examine ourselves a, a, little, a little deeper using what we've seen today in God's Word. I'm going to put up four slides, what I'm calling reflection slides. Each slide will remain on the screen from 30 to 40, 45 seconds. So to actually reflect on this area uh, the slide addresses, you'll need to probably pause the video. But before we do that, let me pray for us. In this time of examination and reflection, let's pray. 
Father God, I, I, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, this different kind of king, our king. His humility, the fact that he reaches out to all peoples. We thank you most of all, Lord, in this time for his sacrifice, his sacrificial death for each and every one of us, Lord. I pray that uh, those characteristics of our of our Lord, our Master, our King, would impact our lives, would impact our hearts, and they would impact our time of communion together, that as we reflect on who Christ is, that you would uh, bring renewal to our minds and change to our lives, in Christ's name, amen. So I'd encourage you to take, take your time as you move through these slides. I've included relevant scripture to aid your reflection, and once you're finished reflecting, we'll move on to remembering. Here is, here, so here are the, the four slides that you can go through and reflect on. So I hope and I pray that you found this time of reflection helpful. I pray that you're now, uh, maybe in a way you've never experienced before, ready to remember what Christ has done for you. 
as we remember Christ's sacrifice, I, I want to remind us again of the glory that his sacrifice provides for us. This is why we celebrate communion. His sacrifice provides us with, with relationship with God. His sacrifice provides our lives with purpose and meaning. We die to self, but we bear much fruit. His sacrifice means we hate our lives in this world but that he provides us with eternal life in his glorious kingdom. And his sacrifice means we become his servants, and his Father honors us for our service to him. So let us remember his sacrifice and celebrate all it means for us. To the church in Corinth, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembering his sacrifice and all it means for us, let us partake in the bread together. In the same way, also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Remembering his sacrifice and all it means for us, let us partake of the cup together. Father God, I thank you again for your glorious sacrifice. I thank you for all it means for us. Lord, I pray that we would be impacted by all you've done for us, all you offer us. Lord, I pray that in this uh, difficult time as we're separated, Father, that you would meet us, that we would continually on a daily basis commune with you, that in our homes we would meet you, through your word we would meet you, through, through the fellowship we have with our family, those that we're with, we would meet you. Father, I thank you that you're our king, that you care for us, that you love us, and that we can be confident in our relationship with you. We can be confident in the care you provide for us. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you, and I hope to see you soon.